0: I will invite you to um, open your copies of God's Word in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we are considering tonight uh, verses 17 to 24. And uh, our focus will be on 24 specifically, because that's one of the main um proof text that the uh, uh or and Kasparov Oble- Olivianos, the authors of the Heidelberg, use for this question and answer that we are going to study tonight. So if you are there in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, please stand to hear the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Um, Now, if you see in uh, your bulletins, we have our confessional text for this evening, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4, and this is actually the last Lord's Day that that we'll be dealing with our sin. Next Lord's Day, we are going to be dealing with deliverance, and we are going to start seeing uh, um, doctrines about Jesus Christ, uh, um, the Trinity, and, and everything else. So this is the last time that we consider sin and what sin has done to us. So let me just read the question and answers for you. Uh, But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Answer, no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. gifts. Question, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he's also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Those are our three questions for from the Catechism tonight. Uh, so, dear congregation of the Lord, uh, have you noticed that the Reformed faith has one of the most robust historical and biblical understandings of sin. In fact, we have been surveying such an understanding in the last couple of evening services. Yet, um, have you realized at the same time that uh, our doctrine of sin is one of the most difficult to accept, not only by unbelievers, but also by believers as well? And normally, When you are explaining the scriptural understanding of sin and the description of total depravity, there appear three common objections to uh, the doctrine. And they sound somewhat like this First objection if we are totally depraved, then God is unfair because He's requiring us to do something that we cannot do. Second, if we are totally depraved, then God will understand that we are sinners. And he will pass around our failures and he will not do anything with them. And third, if we are totally depraved, then God is merciful and he will certainly let us go into heaven because after all, nobody is perfect. So tonight we are going to take these uh, three objections against God which correspond, by the way, with the three question and answers that we have read from the Heidelberg Catechisms and we will analyze uh, what the Bible has to say about these objections in response so we will do that in three parts first god is not unfair second god will certainly punish sin and third god is just so god is not unfair second god will punish sin and third god is just so let's see the first part god is not unfair Question nine of the Heidelberg Catechism starts like this: But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man is unable to do? And and if we take that question from that perspective, uh, at least from the surface, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, boys and girls? If your parents are requiring you to bake two thousand pizzas in an hour, knowing full well that you can't make them, uh, it will be, will it be? fair if after an hour there are not two thousand pizzas on the oven would it be unfair for them to spank you see it sounds very unfair if we put things in that way i cannot make two thousand pizzas i shouldn't be spanked but that is not how we are to understand things rather it's more like this when one of your parents requires you to clean up your room tidy up your bed, and you know that you can do it easily, and by the by, the end of the day, it has not been done, is it unfair if your parents spank you? Of course not. It was a doable, easy, doable task. You knew you could perform it, and you had the capacity to do it. But the problem is that you just didn't want to do it therefore you cannot excuse yourself because of your laziness that is what the catechism is talking about when we hear the answer no god created man good with the ability to keep the law man however at the instigation of the devil in willful disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts now we have already seen how a devil deceived adam and eve right but we learn two new things tonight in these answers. First, the first thing that we learn is that Adam and Eve were more than capable, more than capable to obey God's command. In the garden, they were endowed with every good gift coming from God himself, as we have already learned. That is why when God established the covenant of works in Genesis 2 uh, with the following words, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When we hear those words, when we hear God speaking to Adam in that way, we need to understand that it was an easy task to perform for Adam and Eve. That the natural outcome of such a test would have been a total success on Adam's part. Adam and Eve were perfectly capable of doing it. You know why? Because in the garden, the gracious and loving hand of God had created them with everything, every single thing that they needed in order to obey God's command. The covenant of works, in other words, was not was not an unfair test, nor was a test that had failure already in view. That is a twisted understanding of who God is, by the way, and of the things he does. If we could picture how the covenant of, work, of works was arranged, uh, we could use the image of a soldier, actually. Adam was going with all the equipment in the world, and, and not cheap equipment, not Ecuadorian equipment, uh, but the best of the best, American equipment, all of that, and, and, and like all the gear and everything. And everything graciously and freely given, provided for uh, by God to Adam. So when we see Adam entering in the field, uh, we see him going in such a way that all of us needed to think, oh, he's going to come victorious. He is going to make it. There was nothing in Adam himself, nothing in his equipment, nothing in his composition that failed or set him to failure. That is why Adam's failure is so, so serious. There was nothing wrong with him. There was nothing in in him that made him fail. But in the end, he himself willfully, on purpose, decided to surrender himself to the enemy, to the devil. He didn't even try to fight against the serpent. He simply surrendered himself To her lies, and that is perhaps the saddest part of this all, that the serpent, see, the serpent didn't come with a host of bully angels and decided to beat up Adam until he finally decided, okay, okay, I surrender, I will disobey. That was not how it worked. All that it took was for Adam to listen to the lies of the serpent. And that is why the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism chose Ephesians 4.24 that we just read tonight as a proof text for this answer. Listen to verse 24 once again. And out of the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul here is using language that is alluding to creation, back to the original state of Adam and Eve, uh, to, to all that equipment that Adam had in the garden. And it's telling us that we Christians, we have been endowed once again with that equipment in Jesus Christ. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we have the best of the best in a spiritual war equipment. So just as Jesus conquered over the devil, so us too may conquer over the devil. Not in ourselves, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who has given us this power To conquer precisely because we are united to christ that is why christians need to to dwell in god's word because the devil loves to uh, to come to our ears and make us doubt that we belong to jesus christ but learn this boys and girls brothers and sisters in jesus we have been giving given excuse me the armor of the spirit and because of that we can conquer against Satan. We can conquer against Satan. Not as a way to save ourselves, but because we have been already saved in Jesus Christ, we can conquer as a means of participation in Jesus Christ. So as we fight sin, as we grow in Him, we look more like Him, and we learn to imitate Him for the rest of our lives. Now, the second thing we learn tonight is that the covenant of works has not stopped its demands. All throughout history, the demand of the covenant of works continues impressing itself upon every single descendant of Adam. Do you know why? Because we all, naturally speaking, are born united to Adam. Because he was our champion, and when when he lost, we lost as well. And the shame of that loss continues pressing itself over and over again every single day of our lives upon us. That is why God is not unfair. He is simply applying the demands of the covenant of works over us. Demands that were more than fair, more than gracious, more than doable. Like your parent reminding you every single day that you have not cleaned up your room yet. The covenant of works runs through history reminding us, reminding us that we have disobeyed God's righteous, holy demand and that death and punishment for that violation is constantly chasing all of those who are still united to Adam. Naturally speaking, you and I were born in Adam. But let me just break the chain here of the reasoning of the Heidelberg Catechism to bring some comfort for you. Because the covenant of works does press its demands upon every single human being, and that—that that is why we need Jesus Christ. For those who belong to Jesus, that is you and I, those demands have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. See, we are a congregation united. We are in Jesus Christ, and all that is His is ours as well. And that's why Paul can say, therefore, there is now. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because we belong to him, there is no condemnation to us. Because we belong to him, the covenant of works no longer applies to us. We are freed from that demand. Now, the second thing that we see tonight is that God will punish sin. And this is our second point. I'm sure you are familiar with the following reasoning. If you have not heard it, uh, that's good. I have many, many times. If we all are sinners then there is no way there is no way god will punish us all this is like when you are in the school and if we got an f if all of us got an f there is no way that the teacher is going to uh, make us lose lose the grade now that's not how it works and and some people go beyond that and affirm you see god is like a good grandpa he's old he's tired Therefore, he will not do anything to you. Chances are, in fact, that he lets you go in in heaven anyway. So don't worry. Everything is okay. Just like your grandpa ignores your misbehaviors and gives you a chocolate, God, too. He's too tired. He will give you a pass into heaven as well. Or maybe a very recent one that I read on the Internet. Someone said, let me quote it, I like the Jesus of the TV show The Chosen because it's a Jesus that loves all and never judges me. But is that an accurate portrayal of who God is? And is that an accurate portrayal of who Jesus is? Is the Jesus of the Bible a hippie Jesus? One that accepts anything we do, one that loves even the sin that we commit, who does not care for how much damage we make to his reputation, his creation, and ourselves? What does the Bible have to say? Well, listen to Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The New Testament also makes reference to this idea. After enumerating a series of sins, Paul in Ephesians 5, 6 says the following. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the list of sins that he has been enumerating, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So according to scriptures, God does punish sin. He is a God who sees sin and he hates it. And this does go in tandem with what the Heidelberg Catechism is saying tonight. He's terribly angry with the sin we are born with As well as with our actual sins, so here we come to understand another layer of the truth of our doctrine, congregation, and that is that there are two kinds of sins that God hates. One is the sin that we are born with, which is called original sin, and the other is composed of all the sins that we commit every single day against God. As I said, the first one is called original sin. The second one is called are called actual sins the first one is the root the origin of the second ones original sin is the poison in the river and uh, and and it feeds the tree and the rotten apples that come out of that are called actual sins and because our being has been contaminated and our actions too are contaminated by sin god will punish sin by a just judgment both now and in eternity declares our confessional tradition. And how different is that confessional tradition from the modern understanding of God, isn't it? Some, even believers, have a twisted picture of God. They imagine a God who is unable to deal with sin, uh, afraid of dealing with sin. Others think that God has uh, uh, unconcerned himself with the affairs of humanity and the world, he has abandoned this world, while others think that they can go around sinning as if it doesn't matter because they are hidden themselves from God. But the eyes of the Lord, says Proverbs 15 3, are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good, who by no means clear the guilty, by the way, according to Numbers 14. So, no, brothers and sisters, and no, boys and girls, we are not allowed to think that God sees evil and does nothing about it. In fact, God's judgment over sin is revealed in the world every single day, even now at every moment. Paul says that in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And do you know how does that look like? Looks like God allowing people to be overcome by their sins. It looks like people who are entirely rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It looks like hardened hearts who rejoice in their sins, accumulating more and more judgment every single day of their lives. So, scriptures present an understanding of God that runs against the understanding of the world. For the world, God is nothing but good vibes, the inner energy in ourselves. The cosmic energy of the universe, or a figure like Santa Claus. As long as I behave good enough, he is going to give me what I want. There's never a call in my sock. Hopefully, boys and girls, we have learned better now. And, and now we know what God is not like. Now, let me, let me answer the third question and the third objection, namely that God is just. And this is our third point. Now, being uh, confronted with the reality that God will punish sin, many will reply, but isn't God merciful? See, checkmate. God is merciful, full of love. He will never, ever punish his creatures. And some some even use scriptures for that. That's why uh, what Dave said this afternoon in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith is so important. Heretics use the Bible as well. And uh, they will say... Doesn't the Bible say God is love? Don't we live in a society of tolerance in which everything is accepted and we are not allowed to say anything about anyone's choices and lifestyles? And isn't God the same? Because after all, he's loving and he's merciful. But the thing is, boys and girls, that when we think in that way, we're misrepresenting God's character, because God is not 30% justice and 70% mercy. So that in the end, his mercy overcomes him, and he has been forcing himself to just uh, not do justice, because he's more merciful than righteous. That is not who God is. That is how pagan gods are, but not the God of the Bible. God is his attributes. Therefore, he is hundred percent merciful and hundred percent just, both at the same time. There is no compromise with him, and throughout the Bible we have these notes of his mercy and justice sounding very, very clearly. Let me read one of them, exodus thirty four six The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yet in the same sentence we read, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So you see both, God is both just and merciful, and we cannot put one over each other in his character. Moreover, it is impossible for God to ignore the sins that we commit against him. He is our infinite creator and sustainer, Every sin against him, every sin that we commit is a sin against him, against his majesty. Every sin, in other words, is of infinite magnitude. It is one thing, boys and girls, to secretly steal some money from your father's wallet. And another thing is to secretly steal from the National Treasury Bank. The first one will get you a spank. The second one will get you in jail for many, many years. Do you know why? Because the government represents an institution that is superior to your father and mother. Therefore, the punishment will be in accordance to that superiority. In the same way with God, every single sin that is committed in the world is, in the final analysis, a sin that is committed against the infinite God of the universe. And because of that, the punishment is infinite in Punishment as well, and that's because the Heidelberg—that's why the Heidelberg affirms that every sin should be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. See, this is no game, and you may be—you may remember where the Heidelberg is getting this idea from. They are getting it from the parable of the sheep and the goats. It is to the goats that Jesus says, "Let me read it to you." Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, the eternal fire. So sin is a serious thing. The reality of our situation is that naturally speaking, we have a debt with God that increases every single day. And God, he will not pretend that those doesn't exist. He can't. He is pure and holy, and his nature demands that sin be punished before his presence. And because he's just, He will actually do that. Now, in all of this, we are moved and really confronted with the amazing and holy nature of our God. And with the terrible problem that we find ourselves in. We can't pay our debt. We can't save ourselves. All that we do do just worsens our situation. Now, is there any solution? Is there any comfort? Shall we despair? Yes, yes, and no. We are not to despair. Because just as God is just, He's also merciful. And that which God requires, He freely grants to us in Jesus Christ. And that is how we contemplate Jesus Christ tonight. The comfort of our souls is found in Jesus because Jesus' congregation becomes the better Adam who takes the arrangement of the covenant of works in his life and he perfectly obeys it and fulfills it. He conquered where Adam lost. Moreover, Jesus is the one who voluntarily put his life as a ransom for our sins on the cross. So the Father poured all his wrath, his justice over him. He punished Jesus in our place. And it is on that cross that we also see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. See, on the cross, justice and mercy kiss each other. On the cross, we see the biggest exchange in history, the just for the unjust, the innocent in the place of sinners. And it is because of him that we no longer suffer condemnation, but we are under a new head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comfort of the gospel and uh, thank you for uh, the reality that Jesus Christ is our new head, that we are no longer under the accusation of the covenant of works, that we have been freed from the curse and from death, but that we belong to you and that in you every single one of our sins have been forgiven. Our debt has been paid and now we are endowed with the presence of the Holy Spirit so we can live for your glory. So help us, Lord, uh, Lord, to show gratitude to you, to live in a way that shows uh, uh, love towards you and towards our neighbor. We thank you for all of this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.